Well, it's a joy to welcome not only those of you gathered here in the room today, but to welcome in uh, others who are joining us online. It's always good to have you be a part of worship with Freedom Church. Uh, If you weren't here last Sunday, we started into a new sermon series entitled How to Change the World. And uh, as we move through this series, we're going to be learning how to share our faith effectively and with confidence. I know this is an area a lot of us feel like we're weak in. And I'm telling you, if you will track with us through this series, I am convinced that you're going to come out of this really feeling good about being able to share your faith and uh, just doing that at a new level. That's our hope and prayer. And one of the things that we're doing along the way in this series is... We're committing some scriptures to memory so that we have a scriptural framework that we're going to use for sharing the gospel. And so even though uh, what we're memorizing week by week isn't necessarily the passage that we're studying for that week, we said we're kind of laying the tracks, laying the train tracks that the gospel is going to run on. And so uh, today we're going to take a moment and do that uh, again. But first we want to go back and review what we did last week. Everybody got that one in mind? Can you call that one up? It was Romans 3, 10 and 23. You ready with that one? You you backed up to that? Starts off, I want you to say it with me. There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 and 23. All right, you warmed back up? That was about a quarter of us doing that one. Let's try that one more time. There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans three, ten and 23. All right, you ready to move on to the next one? Romans six twenty three. We, we, if all you had was the first passage, it just tells us that we're all in trouble. But we're sort of prone to look at that and go, well, if we've all done it and we're all in the same boat, how bad off can we be? I mean, if I'm in the same boat with my grandmother, if I'm in the same boat with Billy Graham, then, you know, if we've all sinned, I must be, I'm going to be okay. But then Romans 6.23 reminds us, none of us are going to be okay in that first boat. Romans 6.23, let's say it together. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, good job. Let's do it again. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philip, will you take it off the screen? And now let's do it again from memory. All right, let's take 20 seconds. Face your neighbor and take turns saying it to one another. Ready, set, go. All right, now one more time in unison. For the... Romans. Great. Very well done. We're going to keep working at those, and when we're done with this series, you're going to be ready to lay out the whole gospel from the Scriptures. Very well done. Well, where we're going today and next Sunday, I hope is going to be really helpful stuff. We're we're taking almost a little bit of a detour in the series. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of effectively sharing your faith, we really want to take a couple of weeks to home in on what is unique about our faith and understanding the faith of other people around us. We, particularly in the present age, and I, I mean not just 
like for our generation, but I mean particularly in the last 10 or 20 years, especially like with the advent of the Internet, we have become such a global culture, which there's a lot of good that comes in that. But one of the things that, that it can be good and bad is that there's this bleeding of ideas and of, of faiths and, and just all of these different practices and thoughts some of which are true and a lot of which are not true that just sort of begin to blend together and it can just sort of become like noise and, and it can become confusing for people as to, okay, well, what's the, the real deal? You know, we grow up here in the Bible Belt where there's a church on every corner and we feel like, well, surely everybody's heard about Jesus. But now it doesn't matter whether you live in the Bible Belt or in some third world country. Now you're exposed to all kinds of different messages and all kinds of religions. It's It's as if through the internet and, and television and all, that there's a loudspeaker on every corner broadcasting a, a different message. Um, I, I thought it, it was just kind of a sign of the times. The, the AP reported some time back that uh, in Oslo, that the, I forgot the name of the organization, but it's, it's basically the, uh, the Islamic Council had gone and petitioned the city for permission to set up their minarets and, and loudspeakers, you know, to give the Muslim call to prayer in their city. If you've never been in a city when that goes out, boy, it is a, it's a strange, kind of a chilling sounding thing. And so they're asking for permission in this big city to do that. And they got permission to do that. And so immediately then, because that permission was given, they were confronted by the heathen. Literally, that's the name of the heathen council for that country who said, well, if they've got permission to declare through their loudspeaker five times a day, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. They said, then we want permission to set up speakers every day to call our people out and we want to announce to the loudspeakers every day, there is no God, period. And so they got permission. And so in Oslo, they have to wake up each day to the blah, blah, blah of there is no God but Allah. And then that followed by there is no God, period. And you just think that, that's kind of a picture of the world in which we live, isn't it? That you've just got all of these voices saying different things about God and about faith. And the question really becomes, does it matter what you believe? Or is it just okay to just have faith? And that really is where a lot of people land, by the way, to just get to a place of saying, well, so long as you believe in a God, and so long as you have a faith that you practice, and you're comfortable with that, then surely that's going to be enough. Because aren't all these different names just different names for the same God? And aren't all these different faiths just different pathways that lead us to God? That's a fair question. That's a fair set of questions. I think today and next week we're going to see and hear some really clear answers to that. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm not going to preach from Jeremiah 2, but we're going to use this as a jumping off point. And uh, if you're not real well versed in the Old Testament, if you'll cut to the middle, you'll hit Psalms, turn right. When you get to Isaiah, you're almost there. If you hit Ezekiel, turn left. You ran past it. Jeremiah chapter 2. I will tell you that the age in which we live today, where America being sort of in the, in the spotlight for us, where we've seen America be a very Christian nation, and yet if you checked our pulse spiritually in 2016, you wouldn't so much say we're just a Christian nation, we're becoming a bit of a melting pot nation where people whose parents or grandparents had been Christians are now becoming sort of irreligious or they've become open to other, other faiths, other religions, testing the waters, and I'll just tell you that is nothing new. 
that is as old as time. And it is a problem that God has had to confront with his people time and again. And it's what he's doing. God's the one speaking in Jeremiah 2. See if this doesn't seem like a timely word for the day. Jeremiah 2, 5. This is what the Lord says. The rest of what I'll read is God speaking. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You think God doesn't care when we stray after, chase after other faiths and other gods? God says that makes you worthless yourself. He says they didn't ask where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, that is another god, a false god, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. A reminder that when one generation abandons their faith, it has a tremendous impact on their kids and their grandkids. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory. Other translations say, God says, my people have exchanged my glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Well, you wouldn't really have to go much further than that passage to find a real clear answer to the question of, does God just answer by a lot of different names? So long as you have something that you call God and you seek to worship that and, and let that be the, the ruler of your life, doesn't God just accept that as worship of Him? Well, Jeremiah reminds us as he quotes what God had to say that God doesn't think that's okay at all. He says that makes you worthless. That makes your worship worthless. He's appalled by this. He, he calls on all of creation, saying, Have you ever seen anything so foolish ever in history as a people who would know the one true God and who would turn from that true God to chase after other things that are not God's at all? Well, that's what God says about a people who would choose to look at anything else and call it God rather than serving the one true God. Well, today and next week, we're going to talk about different ways that people pursue faith, religion, or God other than Christianity and how those things stack up to Christianity for a couple of different reasons. For one, it really does help us to understand our faith and the uniqueness of it, but it also helps us to understand a beginning point for communicating well with people from other faiths. And oh, along the way, here's a real nice bonus. If you've ever had that nagging voice in the back of your mind that, that basically said to you, you're only a Christian because you grew up in this part of the world. 
You're only a Christian because your mama and daddy and your grandparents were Christians. And you were told this was the truth. But if you had grown up in India or in China or in some other foreign land, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. And you'd probably be just as convinced that the faith that you have is the true faith. The only reason you believe what you believe is because you were born where and when you were born. And your faith is no more valid than the faith of other people. Now, I realize we're not going to get a bunch of people going, yeah, that's what I struggle with. But for a lot of people, that's been kind of a nagging concern. And I think that today and next week will help to lay those things to rest. Today, we're going to talk about the other three of the world's four major religions. The four, in terms of just numbers of adherents, there are four major religions in the world. They are in order of, of size, Christianity, Islam... Hinduism and Buddhism. Those four faiths comprise about 72 or 73 percent of the world's population. And when you get beyond the big four, it's just you fall off a cliff in terms of numbers. Uh, Of the four that I just named, Buddhism is by far the smallest of those four. It's got, it depends on whose numbers you believe, somewhere between 375 and 500 million Buddhists in the world. When you go beyond Buddhism to the numbers 5, 6, and beyond, which would be Sikhism and Judaism and and moving on down from there, number 5 has got about 25 million adherents. To to put that in perspective, number 4 out of the big 4, about 6% of the world's population are Buddhist. The next largest faith is less than one-half of one percent, and it just goes down from there. So you you get the picture. About three-quarters of the planet is a part of one of these four faiths, and everything outside of that just becomes sort of a jumbled mess of all of these regional religions, basically, which don't have tremendous numbers of people in them. So what we'll talk about today, the other three of the big four, we really want to understand what they believe, where they're coming from, And how does that stack up to Christianity and how do we speak to that? So are you with me? You ready to dive into that? Now, I've I've given you a long outline and I've already had two or three people go, Ooh, I've seen the outline. I know that makes you nervous. I'm not going to preach for three hours. I'm not going to, we're not going to need to take a lunch break. The, The length of the outline is not reflective of the length of the message. It's just there's a lot of information that may not be easy to just remember when we put these side by side. So I wanted you to have it in print so that you'd have that hopefully as a resource that you might use later. I'm not going to talk about these three faiths in order of size. I'm going to share them with you in terms of the order in which they appeared in history. So we're going to begin by talking for a few minutes about Hinduism, which began 5,000 years ago. Now, in one very real sense, we would say, well, Christianity is the oldest faith because the one true God has been revealing himself since the beginning of, of humanity on earth. And that's very true. Christianity, as we would think of it in terms of us specifically being followers of Christ, would be 2,000 years old since he showed up in the flesh 2,000 years ago. So in that sense, Hinduism is the oldest faith that's practiced by many people today. It's about 5,000 years old. And if you've always felt like you have a little bit of a hard time getting a, a real good handle on what Hindus believe, there's a good reason why you'd feel that way. Because they can't figure out what they believe collectively. Hinduism is not one faith. It is this kind of, it's not kind of, it's it's a quite confusing collection of faiths that essentially they use the word Hinduism to define most all of the religion that came out of India dating back to about 5,000 years ago. It doesn't revolve around one particular person in history. It's just this collection of all of these different ideas and gods that sort of get thrown together. 
but within that, and there are uh, today, there are about 950 million Hindus. It is not a faith that is on the grow. In fact, as you'll see in the next couple of minutes, there, this is not a faith that, that you would go out and try and share with others and convert. In fact, there's a good reason not to do that if you're a Hindu. That kind of is out of step with what they believe. The way that Hinduism has ever grown in 5,000 years is that it's just really old and they make a lot of babies. I mean, India, if you haven't noticed, has about a bazillion people living in it. And because it's been around for 5,000 years, it has just very, very slowly grown simply through birth and big families to be about 950 million people today. It is not on the grow. It is not on the move. It it, It really is not a movement in terms of world history today. It's just a pile of people in southern Asia mostly who, who believe in this collection of, of just very old ideas that really revolves around a, a couple of things. The central idea, in, if you put all of the Hindu beliefs together, the couple of central things that they believe in would be defined, first of all, uh, around karma. Everybody's heard of karma, and, and it's kind of, it's a little bit weird that Christians love to talk about karma. And, and let's be clear about this. Karma is a pagan concept, I know it sounds kind of, ooh, you know, hip and cool to talk about, ooh, that was just, you know, that was your good karma or that was bad karma coming around on you. It's a pagan idea. It's not a Christian concept. Karma is the the law or the principle of cause and effect. And, you know, maybe you've heard of karma but didn't know exactly what it meant. Karma simply is this idea that if you do good, you're going to get good. And if you do bad, you're going to get bad. But the, the Hindu concept of karma isn't necessarily like, oh, do, go do good this week and good things are going to come back to you for the rest of the year. They don't believe that karma is always that quick. They think that karma, because the other big part of what they believe is in reincarnation. That we've all been spirits that have, have lived again and again and again. We're all on the big wheel of life. And every time when your life is over, you're going to immediately be reincarnated. You're going to be born again as a human being. And you're going to have an opportunity to move up or down the social ladder. And within Hinduism, you know, of course, there are four castes. There are four different stations in society. There, there really are five. They only identify four. The fifth one they won't even call a caste because they are the untouchables. It's a, it's a very segmented society. And their religion feeds that because they believe, you see, this is how karma works. If in your past life you were a good person, and most importantly, if you did your dharma... That is your responsibility in life for your station in life. If you did what you were supposed to do for your whole life, then you got a shot at moving up the scale in your next life. And karma dictates that. You did good, you get back good. But you do bad and you're going to get back bad. Here's the really wicked twist in that. Because they believe this, and because they believe this is the defining principle of life, it means that Assisting other people, any type of social aid, anything that would be designed to help somebody get out of the bind that they're in, somebody who's born into poverty, somebody who's living in a dire situation, it eliminates any interest in helping them. Because if you're at a bad place in life, that was your doing. Oh, you may have lived a good life so far in this lifetime, but if you're in a terrible place, if you're suffering, that's karma 
proving to all of us that in your past life you were a bad person. You didn't do your dharma. You didn't do your duty in the past life. And now you're getting what you deserve. And I dare not help you out because if I helped you get out of the place that you're in and get to a better place, I would be working against your karma. So I'm working against the whole law of the universe. So we don't help each other out. If you're in a bad place, it's your fault. Maybe not in this life, but in a former life. And in terms of of any concept of God, oh, they've got plenty. Uh, They've got gods galore. You've heard of some of their gods, gods like Shiva. Uh, They've got a god for everything that you can imagine. Uh, their, Their gods number at least in the thousands, and some say that they number actually up into the millions, the numbers of named gods. Because Hinduism is a faith that is willing to embrace every idea of God. In fact, their overarching concept is that everything is a part of the divine. There is one Brahman. There is one uh, reality that encompasses all things, and all things have the divine within them. Yeah, very New Age kind of feel to that part of it. And the goal is for us to become a part of that. So by working our way up the ladder, we are getting in touch with us becoming a part of the divine. So kind of any and everything has been and can be a God. So you begin to get a feel for how little this has to do with our faith. Every, everything is a God. They've named numerous gods. And they are the gods that they name, many of them are, are very peculiar. Like Shiva is... You've seen pictures of Shiva before. Many arms and many legs and the skull necklace. Um, Vishnu is another one that you've probably heard of. Very very peculiar gods. Well, how does Christianity stack up next to this? Well, we can answer that very quickly. Three or four verses that would speak to what's different about our faith. First of all, kind of the opening word from the Lord to his people in defining what our faith is built around is Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema. The first thing that a a good Jewish child would learn. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. It's monotheistic faith. There is only one God. He is a God who always exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He is one God. Beyond that, and this was a slip up. I meant to put it in your outline and fail to. But Hebrews 9.27, that one's worth writing down under Hinduism, which says people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Hinduism says you die again and again and again because you live again and again and again. Christianity is very clear about this. You get one life on earth and after that you die and you face judgment. The scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. Not to come back to earth again and again to see if you can get it right and eventually be with the Lord. Uh, Titus 3.5, a reminder that life is not about trying harder and doing better to work your way up the ladder. Uh, Paul says there, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And in terms of the whole idea of we dare not help one another, there is nothing more patently Christian in terms of ethics than the idea of loving and serving one another. We, we could list dozens of passages. Proverbs nineteen seventeen is a good example, which says, If you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. And Jesus says, Whatever you do for the least of these brothers, you do it directly to me. It's, it's a, an exact contrast to Christianity. So with Hinduism, immediately you just see 
It's not like these are similar faiths at all. One God, countless gods. One life, life again and again and again. Do nothing for your neighbor, love and serve your neighbor. Start contrast. So are you with me in terms of Hinduism? Any questions about Hinduism before we move on? Good, because I might not get answered. The second one we'll talk about is Buddhism. It came on the scene 2,500 years ago. Just in terms of, of fitting that into uh, the picture of history, if you're comparing it to Christianity, think end of the Old Testament. The Jewish people have been in Babylon, that kept season of captivity under the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. And it's toward that, that season of, of their release and they're returning and repatriating the Holy Land. And so at about that same point in history, if you just shift eastward a ways to the eastern edge of India, the border of India and Nepal, it's a region that, again, at that point, Hinduism is 2,500 years old. It's very much Hindu. And within the context of Hinduism, a prince is born. Now this is, Prince Siddhartha is a historical figure. He really did live where Hinduism isn't built around historical figures Buddhism is. Now, the, the birth of Prince Siddhartha, I'll let you make your own judgment on. Because Siddhartha is the one who will, when he's a little bit older, will become the Buddha. <clears throat> when he was born, as the story goes, his mother, uh, Queen Maya, had gone to sleep one night. And while she slept, a white elephant came into her room and crawled into her side. Now, either this was a very small elephant or she was a big old gal. I'm not sure which, but I've never been able to marry those things up together. A white elephant came into Queen Maya's side, and she became pregnant with, she would find out ten months later, a son. Uh, Siddhartha was born to her ten months after the elephant entered her side. He grew up in royalty with just, as you can imagine, great wealth and just you know a life of pleasure and ease. And he discovered that life was still meaningless, that he still was empty, and, and there was still suffering that he didn't understand. And he just wanted to find the meaning of life, and so he left the comfort and ease of the palace, and he went out and he became a wandering, impoverished nomad. And he lived his life like that for quite some time. And he discovered, after a lengthy season of living in poverty, that there was no more joy in poverty than there was in riches. We could have filled him in on that before he ever tried that, couldn't we? You know, that there's, there's no special joy in living in poverty. He found out that was just as empty as living in great wealth. And so he was one of those that thought very deeply, would just ponder and try and figure out the meaning of life. I mean, literally, he plucked out by hand every single hair on his body as he contemplated the meaning of life. That is a different dude, isn't it? And one day, he's sitting under a bow tree, and he hears and sees a music teacher instructing his pupil about how to play a particular instrument. And he hears the teacher say, now, don't get the strings of your instrument too tight. That'll make a bad sound. But also, don't leave them too loose, because that'll make an equally bad sound. The key is something in between. And it hit him right then. It was his aha, his moment of enlightenment. That's, that's it. To have too much wealth is not good. And to have too little wealth is really not good. 
The key is to be somewhere in between, just like the, the string of the instrument, not too tight and not too loose, that we shouldn't have too much and we shouldn't have too little, that the first key to balance is being somewhere in between. And in that moment, light dawned on him, and he went from being Siddhartha, Prince Siddhartha, to being the Buddha, the enlightened one. And suddenly, like a flood, all of these concepts about life and reality dawned upon him. And he began to record these things. And he created the eight-step pathway, which reflected his understanding of what really mattered in life. Now, bear in mind, he came up in a Hindu culture, so he already had completely bought into the whole idea of reincarnation, that there's just this big wheel of life. You're born, you live your life, you die, you come back based on how you lived your last life. So that was already the framework which he believed, and he continued to accept that part of it. So Buddhism believes in reincarnation and that, that whole wheel of life thing. But his concern was not about gods. In fact, he, he didn't teach that there was a god, and he certainly didn't teach that he was divine. Instead, he focused on the concept of suffering. Why do people suffer? Why do they have to die and be born and suffer and die again and again and again? And how do we escape this? What is this suffering thing all about? And he came to the simple conclusion that all human suffering is rooted in one thing. And that is craving. That we humans crave too many things. And our cravings lead to disappointment to pain and suffering. If you, if you crave and you live in poverty, your cravings are never satisfied and you're always miserable. And if you live in wealth and you're always craving things, you never have enough. And what you have leaves you dissatisfied because you realize it wasn't what you needed. So no matter what your station in life, it's all about human cravings. And so to get beyond suffering, we must follow the eight-step pathway to eliminate all craving, all desire that we have in our lives. So he created this very complex and difficult plan for you and me to get rid of every sense of craving for anything on earth that we could want. Whether a material possession, a position in life, a relationship, to just be done with that. To no longer feel any attachment to anyone or anything. To no longer crave those things. We just get to this blissful state of... Of nothingness known as nirvana. You've always heard that expression. Nirvana. Well, once again, it is a pagan concept. It is this state of total peace because I no longer want anything in life. Now, they still buy into you're going to die and you're going to be born again. But the only way to break out of this cycle is to follow this pathway which teaches you about right thinking and right goals and all of this stuff that if eventually you can get to the point that you just, you don't crave anything, then you can attain nirvana and you no longer have to continue the cycle again and again. Well, whoop-dee-doo. That's the goal. That's the end of it all. It is a faith without a God. It is a faith without divine revelation. It is a faith without hope. There is no heaven. There is no eternal reward. There is just getting to a point where we escape some suffering by craving nothing. Sign me up not. That, that is 
It is the loneliest, emptiest faith that I am aware of. And you might say, well, who in the world would buy into that? You'd be surprised. It's not a faith that worldwide is particularly on the grow, but it is so chic in certain circles in America, particularly among uh, Hollywood's biggest stars, some of the biggest sports figures. You'd be surprised. In fact, I'll just name several of them for you. I mean, probably the biggest sports figures, Tiger Woods, everybody knows uh, that he is a Buddhist. Phil Jackson, the, I mean, the all-world basketball coach, uh, some of the stars that you would recognize their names, Orlando Bloom, Richard Gere, Steven Seagal, Tina Turner, Jackie Chan, Kate Hudson, Sharon Stone, Steve Jobs. Some of these are very, well, all of these are very successful people, some of them very bright people. You might say, why in the world would an intelligent person pursue a godless faith with such an empty outcome? I can give you a couple of good reasons for it. For one, you don't have to deal with God. Buddhism is designed to escape suffering. It's the whole focus. And so it becomes a plan for dealing with your suffering and overcoming it, but without ever having to deal with God. You see the appeal of that? I mean, at some level, we may be like, but you can't. You know, I mean, you can't escape suffering without embracing a loving, good God. Well, we get that. But if you don't want to deal with the justice of God and the holiness of God, which a lot of people don't, they want to live their lives the way they want to live them, I can have a faith that gives me a pathway to getting free from suffering without having to ever repent, without ever having to deal with my own sin or with a holy God. You see why that has some appeal, don't you? Well, some of the passages that we just said about Hinduism certainly would would apply in, in responding to Buddhism, but... I'll point out a couple of others. Because the concept here is so much about escaping the world and escaping any connection or or craving for anything, I would remind you that's the opposite of what Jesus communicated. Jesus said in John 10.10, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That doesn't sound like Buddhism at all. In John 15.11, he says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus said, I am the source of living water. I'll pour life and joy into your soul. And he says, there'll be no end to that. It's a picture that, that stands in stark contrast to nirvana. Where there's just suffering and unhappiness and I just need to escape from that. No, Jesus said in John 16, in this world you'll have trouble but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus isn't giving us an escapist strategy. Jesus is saying, because I live in you, you can have life, joy, abundance, fullness in this life. You don't have to escape the world. I've sent you to redeem the world. It's such a different message. It's such a completely different faith. And then that brings us to the third of the other big three. Islam. This is the one that's in the news every day. This is the one that should have our attention today. While Buddhism and Hinduism are not particularly on the grow, Islam absolutely is. It all depends on whose numbers you believe as to which one is growing faster, Christianity or Islam. The truth of the matter is they're both growing rapidly. They they both are spreading in many parts of the world. Uh, Islam is strong we, we always equate Islam with the Middle East, and of course Islam is extremely strong in the Middle East. 
But actually, it is particularly strong. It is most um, densely located in Indonesia, the southwestern part of the Pacific Rim, places like Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, It's strong in southern Asia. Uh, It's also, of course, very strong in the northern half of Africa. That's why there's uh, such critical stuff going on in Central Africa because Southern Africa is Christian, Northern Africa is Muslim, and those two are, are aggressively seeking to take the continent by the way Christianity is winning, but, but those two are colliding all the way across the central belt of, of Africa. But Islam has now made major inroads into Europe, and now, very notably, beginning to make more and more into North America. Christianity has made inroads Everywhere, major, major progress everywhere on the planet except for two places, and that is Antarctica, which thankfully doesn't have many people, and the Middle East. It's the only region of the world that Christianity has not made a major, major move. Um, Islam started, just, just to quickly tell you the story of where it came from to understand what they believe, it started almost exactly 1,400 years ago. So in terms of world religions, it's the new kid on the block. Somewhat. We'll talk about some faiths that are, are closer to us geographically next week that are newer than Islam. But in terms of world religions, 1,400 years old is, is somewhat newer. It originated, of course, in the middle of Arabia. Uh, and it, it revolves around the, the teachings of Muhammad. Now, Islam is monotheistic, and that is the one big thing that it shares in common with Christianity, because most world religions have just gods galore or no god. There are very few monotheistic faiths. Islam and Christianity share that as a big thing in common. In some sense of speaking, Islam believes in one sense that they have the one true God that Christians claim, they just think they got him right and we got him wrong. In other words, they believe that their God is absolutely not just the God of Muhammad, but he was the God of Abraham, that he was the God of Moses, he was the God of Noah, and he was the God of Adam. And in some sense, they affirm the Bible just not as you and I have it. It really is It's kind of a double message. They, they say at some level that the core of the Bible is true, but that it's been misinterpreted and misrecorded. And so the version that we have isn't the real truth. And they got it all straight through Muhammad. And, and that Muhammad was the final and true prophet of God. They believe that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus were all prophets of God, but that their messages have been distorted. And now everything got cleared up with the one true final prophet of God, Muhammad, 1,400 years ago in the Arabian Desert. Muhammad was indeed certainly a historical figure whose life is well documented. Uh, He was an orphan who was raised by his uncle. And at the age of 40, he would uh, retreat at times into the desert to a cave to go and be alone and to meditate. And uh, when he was 40, he had gone away for several days to do this. And he claims that uh, the archangel Gabriel appeared to him with a message from God, not only for Muhammad, but for the people that he knew. And so he came back from that encounter and he shared with those closest to him the beginnings of the, the message of Islam from the one true God. And people who trusted him and knew him were just like, 
oh, wow, this is, this is amazing, this is good stuff. And some of them started to believe his message. It's really peculiar the effect that it had on Muhammad because after coming back and sharing this initial revelation that he had, he sunk into a deep depression and essentially was sort of off the map for three years. He didn't go back to the cave. He, didn't, he just didn't do much of anything with this initial revelation for three years because he was in such deep depression. After those three years, he began to re-engage in this whole thing with Gabriel and with Allah, the one true God, speaking to him through Gabriel. And he began to get more and more of the message. And he, he was communicating this to the people who began to write down his teachings. These teachings would form the whole of the Quran. That is, of course, the, the Muslim holy book. The Quran... Uh, People debate some about the origins of it, but I mean the long and short is this. It was written in a span of 22 or 23 years, written entirely based on the teachings of one man. Now that stands in very sharp contrast to our holy book or collection of books, which is not one book. It's 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years of time, yet has tremendous continuity throughout The Quran is written by one person over a very short span of time, about 22 or 23 years. And if you actually read the words of the Quran, you'll find there is amazing discontinuity in what's written there. And if you read all of the writings of Islam, ladies, you'll be very disturbed by some of what you read there. It is not a happy faith for women at all. Some of what you'll find if you read the words of the Quran will include that Muhammad never performed any miracles or claimed to. Nobody in the Quran did. You want to know why? Because none of them had the power to. There was no supernatural power attached to Muhammad or any of those who followed him. You find out a lot of things about the God that's revealed in the Quran that are a little disturbing because Allah, the one true God, never expresses love for the world or for any person in the world. There is no option for a relationship with Allah. Allah is a far off and distant angry God who relates to us by giving us commands and laws and you'd better strictly adhere to those laws or you'll never make your way to salvation. Now there is one easy path to salvation. I say easy. There's one quick path to salvation and everybody knows what that is. That is martyrdom. If you die for the faith, if you die defending Allah or defending Islam, then you immediately get a ticket to heaven. And in paradise, you're given virgins for you to enjoy. There, there is a very sexual side to Islam, which doesn't get talked about in the, in the mainstream media. And it's there. It is in their writings. I, I, I won't share what some of those things are because they're so perverse. But let's just say they are at the expense of women with instructions all the way down to all of the ways that men should violate women. It, it is very disturbing. And by the way, Muhammad's life was reflective of that. He took 13 wives in the course of his life. Number 13 was six years old when he was betrothed to her. And she was nine years old when the marriage was consummated. Let that one sink in. I don't think I want that to be the chief representative of the God that I serve. That is... That is disturbing in and of itself, but if you read all of the Muslim writings, you will find that it is reflective of the attitude toward women. You you women, you're just temptation for men. 
that, that's the Muslim perspective. That's why you need to be veiled, and that's why you need to be completely covered from head to toe. Because you're just a stumbling block from us being faithful believers. Not a very PC message, is it? That doesn't play very well in the West. Well, when uh, Muhammad had received more of the message from God, and he began to communicate this to the people around him in Mecca, and of course you understand why Mecca is the most important city to their faith, because it was the birthplace of not only of the man, but of the movement. Well, it began to cause a real stir there because there were all of these pagan religions. They were just tribal, small religions, but they were all threatened by this message that had suddenly become very popular that Muhammad was teaching about this one God and what he expected. And it was a very complex... It wasn't just a real simple idea. It involved not just faith, but um, politics and business and, and the other business leaders and people of faith were so disturbed by this that they tried to persuade him to stop preaching this message. And he would not do that. And so then they tried to buy him out. They said, we, we will elevate you in the community. We will make you one of the, the top business leaders. We'll make you one of the leading merchants if you'll just stop preaching this message. Well, he wouldn't do it. And so then things turned hostile toward him. And he and his followers had to flee from Mecca. They went to another city. And eventually they went to a third city, to Medina. If you know anything about Islam, you know that the three most holy cities are Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. We won't get to Jerusalem today, but Medina is where he ended up living for a number of years. And that's when his life transitioned into other areas beyond just religion because he became a very strong political figure while he was in Medina, but he also became a strong military leader. He assembled an army of 10,000. And now he moved into the phase of his life where he became a warrior. He led his army of 10,000 in multiple battles. And eventually, after some number of years, he returned to Mecca. And having already won multiple battles, he was able to take the entire city, retake it under Muslim rule. It didn't even take a whole lot of people being killed at that point because he was feared enough that they yielded the city to him. They submitted to him. Which, by the way, that's what the word Muslim means. Islam means submission. Total submission. Total surrender not so much the oh i surrender to you allah as it is it's more of a picture of a foot to the throat kind of surrender you you will submit you will yield to the overpowering will of allah and of the quran the thing that's most disturbing about the quran that is reflective of of muhammad's life is There's this message that seems to be peaceable enough most of the way through the book until you get to the very, very end. And I mean literally in the last couple of pages of the Quran, you get whiplash with the change that takes place there. And suddenly at the end, reflective of the shift in Muhammad's life from being a religious leader to having become a political leader and then a military leader. And by the time you get to the end of the book, suddenly... Violence is not only accepted, it's endorsed. Evangelism by the sword. If infidels, if unbelievers will not convert to Islam, they should be put to death. Now this is where people get so confused or just misrepresent Islam in the media all the time. Because, I mean, what's the message of the mainstream media about Islam today? You you hear it all the time. Islam is peaceable. 
It's peace-loving. It's just occasionally a stray Muslim gets radicalized by ISIS or somebody else, and then they become violent, and they think that violence is an appropriate way to advance the cause, to which I want to stand and scream, read the book. Read their book. Start with the last couple of pages. It specifically authorizes and calls for the deaths of those who will not be converted to Islam. It's a total twist on evangelism. I mean, we're doing a series on evangelism. Can I go ahead and tell you? I'm not going to give you guns or knives until you sick them. Hold a gun to their head and say, either declare that Jesus Christ is Lord or I'm going to blow your brains out. We're not going to go there. Can I tell you, if this was a class on how to convert people to Islam, that would be okay. That's why the work of ISIS is not so much a radicalized movement as it is they're the ones who are just willing to do everything that the book calls for. It's why Islam, and and I'm going to be careful in how I say this because Christians have done some of the dirtiest things ever done on the planet. Christians have been guilty of some of the worst violence ever committed on the planet, not following the teachings of Christ. Because you can search the New Testament and you'll never find authorization of, of New Testament followers of Christ going out and doing harm to others. As we're about to see, we're taught the exact opposite of that. But within Islam... They're taught that this is a valid and appropriate way of approaching the world. And this is why Islam is in complete conflict with the West. I mean, we we don't buy into their way of thinking. Religiously, culturally, we just don't. And we're not quickly converting to that. And so they have one easy solution. You won't convert. You need to die. And we see in our, you know... Founding father, the true prophet Muhammad, that this is an appropriate way to deal with this. We'll use military force. We'll use tactics of fear and violence to bring this about. This is not radicalized Islam. This is just like Islam fully lived out. It would be the equivalent of saying of Christians who actually share their faith and who seek to win other people to Christ. It would be like saying, oh, you're one of those radicalized Christians. You actually talk to people about Jesus. That's not true Christianity. You're just a radicalized Christian. No, that's just what Christians do. Real Christians share Christ with other people. Well, guess what real Muslims do? They seek to convert the world to Islam at any cost using any means necessary. Thankfully, there are a lot of Muslims out there who won't go that far. In the same sense that there are a whole lot of Christians who aren't going to bother to share their faith with anybody, there are a whole lot of Muslims who are content to just live their lives by the five pillars and the teachings of the Quran and who just are going to coexist. I'm glad that's the case. But don't misunderstand the message of Islam. It is a very in-your-face, you-will-submit-or-you-will-die message. That is... That is a part of the core message of Islam. Now, within Islam, there are five pillars that really help to define a a big part of what you see, how a Muslim practices their faith. Very quickly, what those five things are, they are all uh, required to pray five times a day. They pray from the first light of dawn until sunup. They pray at noon. Uh, They pray during the afternoon, at sundown, and in the evening. And if you've ever been in uh, Muslim lands, wow, it is, it's hard to describe. The sound of that is the call to prayer goes out five times a day before the sun's ever up. And I mean, you just want to go, whew, 
unplug those speakers. It's crazy. You go to Israel, you'll be overwhelmed by the constant calls day and night, the calls to prayer. Uh, in the call to prayer, everyone is uh, required to, to uh, out loud make the declaration that Allah alone is God and Muhammad is his prophet. Um, they are, um, among the five pillars, they are required to give away 2 to 3%, not of their income, but of their net worth to the poor. Uh, they are required in the month of Ramadan, everybody's heard of Ramadan, they're required to fast for a month. They don't abstain from food for 30 days and nights, but you, you cannot eat during the daylight hours for those 30 days. So uh, it's, a, it's a lengthy season of fasting, and I've left one out. What did I leave out? Oh, and, and the Hajj. Uh, everyone is expected at some point in your life to make a holy pilgrimage to Mecca or to Medina to, to participate in a Hajj. So those are like five of the biggies. But I don't know about you, but of, of all the things that we've talked about within Islam, one of the things that is so disturbing, well, there's a lot, one of them is how aggressive they are in drawing people in. It's a bit of, of an eye-opener to realize what a, a high level of commitment is required for that. I mean, wouldn't you agree? You, if you're going to convert, you're going to be up praying at the first light of dawn, and you're going to pray till the sun comes up, and you're going to take part. The prayers are prescribed. You don't just pray like for 30 seconds. You're, you're going to pray out loud these certain prayers in these different postures, standing, kneeling, prostrate, sitting. And you, you're going to do that five times a day. You're going to be giving. You're going to, you're going to travel. You're going to seek to win the world. It's, it's a major commitment that's required. There's no hope of a relationship with Allah. There is no loving God on the other side of that. It, it, is a, it, is a, it is a religion with a deep commitment. There's a lot of things you can't have if you're a Muslim. You're not going to be drinking booze. You're not going to be drinking caffeine. There's a lot you're not going to be doing in life. And yet it's very attractive to people. It should serve as a reminder that we don't effectively help people truly come to Christ by lowering the bar and saying, it's so easy, all you've got to do is say a prayer and go to church. Jesus made it clear all the time. If you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you your life. You can't be my disciple if you don't give up everything that you have. The world has been hopping on that train for 2,000 years. And the numbers just get bigger and bigger where that message is preached. The real Jesus, the historical Jesus, demanded our all. We don't need to lower the bar. Islam has figured it out. And history has borne it out. Lowering the bar isn't the trick. Well, among the things about Islam that I hope will stick in your head and, and in your ears is the realization that today, when we got up, already a significant percentage of the 1.4 billion people who profess themselves as Muslims, they greeted the dawn by declaring aloud again and again, Allah is most great. Allah alone is God. And Muhammad is his prophet. Something in the core of my being is so disturbed by that to realize that in every time zone around the planet, as, as earth continues to spin, every day is greeted and ended and filled with the chance. Allah is most great. Allah alone is God. And Muhammad is his prophet. 
And it just makes me realize it is that much more important, not only that we share our faith effectively, boy, that's important, but that we do the thing that we were made to do, and that is to give glory to the one true living God and to declare the Lord God Almighty. He alone is God. Jesus Christ is His Son, and He is our Lord. I, I had I, I get asked as pastors get asked this kind of stuff all the time. I get asked periodically to go to the Baldwin County Commission and to do the invocation for that. And as I uh, earlier this month, and as I went and, and opened that earlier this month, I just really felt impressed as I led us in prayer to just declare that. And, and I said that in prayer. I just said, God, we realize we live in a world today where people around this planet that you made started the day by declaring that Allah alone is God, that he is most great, and Muhammad is his prophet. In Baldwin County, Lord, we speak today, and we declare not so in Baldwin County, that in Baldwin County, Jesus Christ is Lord, that the Lord God Almighty reigns, that he reigns over Baldwin County, and that we are his, and we claim this county. We don't yield to Islam in this county. We need to be a people who make that declaration. We won't win the day with the sword. We will win the day in prayer and as we share our faith and through Christian compassion. Christianity towers above this with a different message. A message that, yes, there is one God, and His name ain't Allah. There is one God who has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And this one God so loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This one God invites us all to be reconciled to Him, not through good deeds and not through martyrdom, but through faith in His Son Jesus. And that this God tells us not to hate those who hate us, but to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, And to pray for those who mistreat us. It is not the same message because it is not the same God. Now, we've been told by high-minded, foolish people, just different names for the same God. All faiths are essentially the same. I want you to close by considering the law of non-contradiction. The principle of non-contradiction is very simple. It's one of the three principles of logic. Two ideas that completely contradict one another cannot both be true, right? Logic demands this. Well, I would dare say that of the four major faiths of the world that we've talked about today, they all four completely contradict each other. Christianity certainly totally contradicts the other three. The law of non-contradiction says they can't all be right. There's only two possible conclusions. They are either all wrong or one is right and the others are wrong. And that's what you have to deal with. I think if you search it out, we all come to the same conclusion. There is one God. There is one God who is true, who is real, who is loving, who is just. And he has revealed himself through Jesus. And he invites us to know him through faith in his son Jesus. We have good news to share. We have good news to believe and embrace. And it is so urgent that we learn to do this well. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for how you reveal yourself through the scriptures. And we thank you for what you've revealed of yourself in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus. It may be that that you're at a place in your life that you've been wrestling with the claims of Jesus and of scripture. 
And maybe today you've just come to terms with the fact that you need to place your faith in the crucified and risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. Whether you're here in the room or watching and listening online, it's such a simple thing to begin that relationship. He invites you to have a relationship with Him, the God of the universe. If you desire to do that, it really is a matter of confessing your sin and your need for God and inviting Him to come in and cleanse you and to live forevermore in you. If you want to do that, would you just, in your heart, you don't even have to do it out loud. You can just pray silently these simple words if this reflects the desire of your heart. Lord Jesus, I do believe in you. Even if I still have questions, I choose to believe in you. That you died for me and rose from the dead. I confess to you that I am a sinner. And I ask you to forgive my sins from the past, today, and the future. Would you come and live in me? Would you take control of my life? And would you make me a new and different person? The best I know how, I give you control of my life. Now and forevermore. Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that comes to live within us and to change us. We welcome your work and we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.